0: This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men In Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! Welcome to a Men In Blazers pod special. A truly special special, because our guest today is a US soccer legend who's won three Olympic gold medals... And a beautiful World Cup. She's amassed a staggering 230 caps and 46 goals during her 15-year career. One that began when she was still in high school, people. And that spanned a period in which the women's game itself has transformed around the world. Partly because of that. And partly because, well, she's just a truly inspirational person on and off the field. And the news of her international retirement led to an outpouring of emotion across America. We wanted to invite her onto the pod ahead of a final game tonight for the U.S. women against Thailand in Columbus. 8pm ESPN2 so we could talk to her about her career arch, her challenges, victories and lessons learned, both in football and in life. So we welcome to the pod, hailing from the great state of New Jersey... A winger who taught us the true meaning of getting weird on the football pitch. One of our favourite players, one of our favourite people in the game. The one and only, heyo, Heather O'Reilly.
1: Hi everyone, thank you for that epic introduction. I am so happy to be here.
0: We are honestly honoured to be with you. I want to jump right in and take you right back to the beginning, almost, Heather. I read that your talent as a footballer was first spotted by a coach on the sideline of one of your three older brothers' soccer games, and the coach took your parents aside and said, she's really going to do something someday. Is that a true story, or is that apocryphal?
1: (laughs) I think that's probably true. Yeah, I grew up with three older brothers, and I always wanted to hang with them. And I think at first, obviously, that, was a little unrealistic but I tried and there got to be a certain point maybe when I was seven or eight and my brother Kevin was about 10 when I was trying and I was getting closer and I remember one of his tryouts in East Brunswick, New Jersey when they were doing you know a speed test at the end and they had the young boys lined up and they were doing full field sprints and for some reason, my dad was just like, Heather, get on the line, like, just try it. And I got on the line. And I mean, I, I surely didn't win. But I hung, I hung in there with these boys that were three years older than me. And I think that that really turned some heads. And I think the fact that I just wanted to step up there and go for it was a big sign. And I owe a lot to my brothers for letting me compete. And then, you know, when I started to get to the point where I was smoking them in soccer and basketball. Then they would make me play their friends because I don't think they like me <laughs> beating them anymore. But they found a lot of joy in it watching me take on their buddies. Oh,
0: I just love the mental picture of a two-year-old Hayo doing Cruyff turns on the sideline during the game. But back then, when you were a kid, this was before the 99ers, who were your footballing heroes? Who did you watch and think, that person or those people are who I want to end up being like?
1: I was the ball girl and water girl at East Brunswick High School soccer and basketball games. The immediate people that I looked up to were the high school girls in basketball and soccer, and I would take my job as ball girl very, very seriously, and (laughs) I would be there ready to go. I mean, of course, I watched men's soccer as much as I could. My family was Metro star season ticket holders. I met Tony Miola early days. He was doing the signing in my town, so wow. he was definitely a local hero. And then I remember my dad talking about this woman named Mia Ham. And I remember specifically saying to him, Dad, her name's not Mia, it's Maya And he's <laughs> like no. He's like he's like, No, no, I'm pretty sure it's Mia Ham later on I found out exactly who Mia
0: Hamm was. I mean, you didn't just find out who she was. You ended up playing with her for two years with the US women's national team. We will jump to that shortly. But it's not surprising to me that your heroes, your heroines when you were growing up were so intensely local. Because back then, and it may be hard for young listeners to believe in this day and age, but back then, women's soccer was such a backwater. It wasn't even in the Olympics until 1996. But what amazes me about you Is it in your first grade yearbook, you still had the vision to write under when you were asked what you want to be when you grew up. You, Heather O'Reilly, do you remember what you wrote?
1: Be a professional soccer player? Yes.
0: Was was that you imagining creatively or was that just an act of prophecy?
1: (laughs) No, I mean, this is my life passion. I remember my first soccer practice. I guess I must have been four or five years old and... I remember passing with some of my teammates and I remember hearing some of these little girls say, like, wow, she's really good. And the pride that that gave me and the confidence that that gave me and self-esteem that that gave me was so immense. And I just absolutely loved the game
0: from when I was a little kid. You attended East Brunswick High School, as you mentioned. Is that the Lady Bears? Yeah, that's the Lady Bears. The Lady Bears. When you arrived there... I read that you were worried that you Heather O'Reilly would not make the varsity team.
1: <laughs> it was a very it's very competitive at East Brunswick High School. Freshmen <laughs> it's, it's it's very tough for freshmen to crack into the varsity team. So I remember on our first open captains practice I strategically wore my New Jersey ODP shorts <sighs> so the coach might see that and trigger that I was a good player and to keep their eye on me and I guess it worked because I made varsity.
0: Uh, not just that, but two and a half years later, you cracked the starting lineup for the US women's national team. Did you also take along your Tony Miola autograph from the signing to impress the coach? Because that probably would have done the trick as well. <laughs> you went on to star. In four years at East Brunswick, you netted 143 goals. Those are Marcus Rashford numbers. When did you first realise that you were good? Not just... East Brunswick good, or Jersey good, but really, really good. And how did you know it?
1: I kind of started doing well with my town team and then doing well with the larger select team in New Jersey and later on making the New Jersey ODP team and then later on making the East Coast team called Region 1, Beast from the East, like we like to call ourselves. (laughs) And (laughs) maybe when I made that first regional team, you're out of your box of playing with local kids and you're now playing with girls from Maryland and from Virginia and from Maine and you know all up the eastern seaboard and I do remember a evaluation that a coach that worked for U.S. soccer had given me at my first U14 national team training camp where they actually got the best of all those regional teams together and we had our first training camp out in California and I remember I was so excited to go to that camp. And at that time, you know, just flying on my own without my parents was a big deal. And this coach, Jeff Pill, at the bottom of the evaluation, he just wrote in capital letters, tremendous potential with about 10 exclamation points. And I think that really inspired me at the time. I think that that told me that I was certainly not there yet, but that there was a lot of belief in me and that I should have belief in myself.
0: The coach wasn't alone in thinking you had tremendous potential because one of the stories that I love most about your career arc is that you broke into the U.S. women's national team 2002 in high school when you were 17 years of age. That's Pulisic-esque. I mean, the the U.S. coach back then, April Heinrich, said of you, on a squad of mothers, O'Reilly is still a daughter. She's funny, naive, cute, and she was appropriately scared to death and in genuine <laughs> awe of people. I mean, it's so true. 17-year-olds, they don't mix with 28-year-olds in real life, but you had to and learned very quickly.
1: I was certainly intimidated. These were women that I literally had posters of in my room and all of a sudden was being asked to play alongside them. I remember at first I felt like I had won some kind of contest in a cereal box or something. That was like, <laughs> come train with the women's national team for a day. So it took a little while for me to sort of get over that feeling and get over being awestruck. I remember when, you know, one of them would call for the ball, I would just give it to them because I wanted them to like me, and I wanted, you know, to be in their good favor. And it was probably not the right decision on the field. So it definitely certainly took a little bit on the field to get comfortable. And off the field, I think that they did a nice job of welcoming me, but at the same time sort of showing me what it was all about. You know, they didn't davy me. They had high expectations for me. There's a story of me in my first training camp, Slept through my alarm, totally missed team breakfast, but nobody really talked to me that much anyway, so I didn't think that anybody noticed. And Julie Fowdy gets the group together on the training field and gives this whole speech about how we have a standard for this team and how there's been people that have been late for things or missed meals, et cetera, and we're going to pay the price, you know, and run suicides because. Some people have been breaking the rules. So I was in the back of that huddle like, oh, my God, I cannot believe this. They actually noticed, first of all. And, you know, in my heart, I was thinking, well, I need to crush these sprints because this was my fault. And I need to sort of make up for my blunder. And April Hendricks gets down to the field on the other side and drops her hand. We bust out of the gate and I'm flying like I'm just crushing this full field sprint. Look to my left, look to my right, don't see anybody. I genuinely think that I'm just so far in front of everybody <laughs> that, that I'm just absolutely crushing it. I'm gonna, is this is going to be great um, make up for my error. Everything will be okay. And I get about 50 or 60 yards out, literally 50 or 60 yards running by myself before I realize that there is nobody there with me. They're instead keeled over, dying laughing on the end line, didn't move a little bit. And that was sort of their way of putting their arm around me and saying, like, we know you missed breakfast, kid. Don't do that again, but we care about you, and it's okay. But this
0: is what this <sighs> seems about. The, the lesson of that story is that Julie Fowdy seems very nice on television, but she's really Rachel McAdams from Mean Girls. There's a, <laughs> there's a great Sports Illustrated profile from you at the time when you were 17. It calls you the girl with the steady feet and the shaky hands. And it begins, she dialed the phone number, then waited for an answer. I just got a date to the prom, squealed Heather O'Reilly, an East Brunswick, New Jersey high school senior, who's just been called up for the international team. As she recounted the call, she said, the prom, it's the biggest thing in my life right now. (laughs) I don't know if you remember making this call, but how did you handle the duality of your life, the serious business of football with Fowdy, Lily, Ham? And the light business of being a normal team, was it a hard balance?
1: I don't think so. I guess I had good people around me that realized that I was being put into a pretty big position and they didn't want me to grow up too fast. So I'm I'm really thankful for that. I guess I tried to maintain as much normalcy in my high school existence as I could and found that to be important to me socially and developmentally. So... I guess I don't really know how I bridged it, but the national team was certainly behind me in all those endeavors. I remember looking for a prom dress on a trip, and Brandy Chastain really wanted me to wear this kimono that we got in Japan, and I didn't have the guts to do it because like, I would totally stand out, and it would not be what the other girls in central New Jersey were wearing to the prom.
0: Chastain, fashion um, forward, Brandy Chastain.
1: I sort of had two worlds going on. I had my my high school life and my national team life. And I managed a way to make them coexist.
0: You inherited Mia Hamm's number nine. I think you even subbed in for her in her emotional final retirement game from the US team. Was the biggest lesson you learned from her that it was okay for women's players to be hyper competitive in practice as well as on the field?
1: It's one of my biggest honors in in my career is subbing in for Mia when she came out and have the honor of wearing that number. I definitely think the biggest lesson that I learned was not only is it okay to compete, it's absolutely crucial for the team's success to get after it at practice. And, you know, I I witnessed firsthand those women grinding at training and these epic 5v5 battles that, you know, a few teams were leaving, pissed off for the day and wouldn't talk to each other till the next time we got to train together and i i remember thinking like these women (laughs) like this is really intense they take this really seriously but i guess that it was just ingrained in me early on that there's no other way that there's no other way to train that there's no other way to live besides laying it out there and we realized that if you train like that then when you get to these big events you have nothing to be nervous about because you've done it over and over and over and over and Laid these incredible habits of winning, and a desire to win, and I think that sometimes our inner squads against each other when we play, you know, first team versus second team, or, or the coaches just mix it up, that those games are harder than any international games that we can play, and I think that we take a lot of pride in that, and take a lot, of, a lot of pride in, in pushing each other to to get to our highest potential, and that was definitely. Something that I learned from Mia and Christine Lilly and and Julie Foudy and and that gang.
0: 2003, right after you graduated high school, making your first start for the senior US women, 5-0 victory against Ireland, Salt Lake City. Two minutes into the game, you scored the opening goal, aggressively challenging uh, the Irish keeper with a diving header. There was a collision on the play and it left you with a shattered left leg, an injury that kept you out of the 2003 World Cup. How did that feel as a kid, so young? Did you feel then that you'd missed your shot? Or were you just like, it's just a flesh wound, I'll be back?
1: <laughs> no, I mean, that was definitely my, my first major adversity in my career. I was given an opportunity to start in that game because it was sort of a, a last look to see if I was ready yet to play in the World Cup. April Hendricks has later told me that I was likely to make the team if that injury hadn't occurred. But I remember the exact play. Julie Spouty served a wonderful ball from the right midfield. And I remember the ball up in the air and, like, just knowing that I had to go for it and, you know, try to obviously put it away. And when I was injured, I was – it was totally, like, one of those dramatic things. I mean, I was a kid, but I was, like, kept saying, like, why me, why me? And um, there's, like, some awesome video of this. When I'm down on the field, and I think that it was a round prom season to be honest, because I have these like acrylic nails on, and'm <laughs> no, I'm, I'm really not proud of that. I certainly tried hard and thought that I could come back in time for the World Cup and I think that it was my first time in my life. I realized that sometimes having desire and strong will isn't enough and Sometimes your body just takes time to heal, and it's not meant to be. And I couldn't recover in time. I didn't, you know, have my speed and strength back. I was still limping. I I wouldn't have been an asset to the team. And I remember going into my freshman season at Carolina a little bit banged up. And, you know, there was a lot of hype around me coming to Carolina and high expectations, and I wouldn't want it any other way. But here I come in, not myself, a little bit slow and unfit and timid and uh, it was hard the first couple of games of the season having to sit out and watch the team and Anson dorans actually took me to lunch and we chatted through some things and he reassured me that i was going to be okay and they would look after me and every single week of that season i just got stronger and and more fit and more hungry and more confident and by the end of that season you know i was back to my myself so I think that it definitely shook me up as a young player. I had not faced an injury before, but with some good people around me, I was able to get through it. And um, I remember watching in my freshman dorm room, uh, the end of the game in the semifinals that the USA had lost.
0: In the World Um, Cup.
1: Yeah. I remember watching it in my dorm room being devastated for the team, devastated that I I wasn't part of it. But I, I was confident in myself and my abilities that I could, I I would get
0: back there. It didn't slow you down for long. You went on to North Carolina with your acrylic nails and your kimono and you dominated 97 games, 59 goals, two national championships. And while you were there, you headed to the Olympics in Athens, netting the game winner in extra time of the semifinals along the way to your first gold. Did that medal mean the world to you? Or were you like, even back then, were you just like World Cup World Cup, World Cup.
1: Playing in the Olympics is massive. I mean, as a soccer player, as an athlete, as an American, you know, the Olympic Games are incredible. So I think I had let the previous year go, and I was so thrilled to make that team. I was really close. It was really, I I had to have been the last person selected. It literally came down to a few training sessions at the end of that summer tryout. I had a couple really good, scrimmages at the end of the training camp and scored a few goals and I think that kind of confirmed to April that I was ready to to make that 18 person roster which is as we know very small and competitive and then my role in those games were certainly a role player a reserve and in the semifinal against Germany uh, is one of my proudest moments of my career and it happened when I was only 19 years old go into the game, have a wide-open opportunity in overtime to send us on to the final, beat the goalkeeper, wide-open net on my left foot, ding the post, goes out of bounds. Uh, Absolutely <laughs> really devastating. It was a, it was a sitter. Uh, it was 100% should have been finished. My team's exhausted. It's overtime. I remember looking over at Abby, who was my strike partner at the time. We played a conventional 4-4-2, and Abby and I were up top next to each other. I was sort of looking for like, don't worry about it, bud, like you'll get it next time. And I just remember looking over and Abby was so exhausted and she had her hands on her hips and she just kind of shook her head (laughs) like (laughs) and and it was one of those defining moments in my life and in my young career so far at that point. Nobody was going to do it for me. You know, my parents were in the stands. My teammates were there. My coaches obviously believed in me enough to to put me into a match like that, but nobody was going to do it for me. You know, just a few minutes later, me at Ham gets to the end line. I crash the box, get a a piece of it, and it goes inside netting, and we went on to obviously the final and then to win the gold medal. So that to me is one of my favorite goals that I've scored because I certainly had a decision to make if I was going to crumble or if I was not, and –
0: you didn't incur the disapproval of Abby Wambach in perpetuity. You redeemed yourself. Yeah, <laughs>
1: yeah I mean, that head shake, I can still see it right now. I'm feeling part, I'm so. I'm
0: feeling fear, and I'm, I'm thousands of miles away from Abby right now. But you came out of college. You signed for the New Jersey Wildcats and the United Soccer League's W League. You've played in three women's professional leagues, two of which are no longer with us. How have you experienced the rise and fall? of women's league football and has it progressed as fast as you believed it would throughout your career? Yeah,
1: it's been difficult. I think there's a little bit of two worlds going on, especially currently of the women's national team and our professional leagues. I really hope that quickly those two worlds aren't as divided. It's been difficult and I feel like we have an immense responsibility to you know, improve our domestic league because you know it is the future it's the future of the national team we simply can't compete with other countries unless we have a successful stable professional league here Uh, i know that julie foudy and and mia they feel the same disappointments about the wsa folding i think that that was incredibly hard for that group of players to see something that they had worked on for so long and took so much pride in not make it after three seasons And then the same thing happened in the WPS. And that was my generation. We took a lot of pride in in the launch of that league. And we thought, this is the time. And this is going to last forever. And again, after three seasons, it folded. And it's extremely difficult. And it's extremely disruptive to all the players who are obviously such passionate people about their craft. And you you don't know what the next year is going to bring in terms of your team or your league. And that's a really unsettling feeling. And now we're into the NWSL, and, and it's shown a lot of promise. I think U.S. soccer realizes that it's the solution for getting the best training environment for the national team and for the growth of the national team, and that's why they're invested in the league. And I truly hope that the NWSL is is around forever. I'd like to see the MLS you know, add more women's teams to their franchises. I think that that's sort of the next, evolution for club soccer here in america and uh we've seen that a little bit with orlando coming in this season and and houston coming in last season and those are success stories
0: you played for the us team for 14 years how has the women's game evolved in your time at the elite level around the world
1: it's evolved so much you know it's not only Three to four teams now that you hear about having a, a real chance to win, I think the top talent pool in the top 10 teams is incredible, and any one of those teams could win a major championship. I do believe that. I think, obviously, we've moved away from just the physical dominance of being faster, stronger, more competitive, having an attitude to win and to accept nothing less. I hope that those things are in the fabric of our national team for eternity. But, of course, the game has evolved in in a lot of ways. It's a wonderful thing. It's fantastic that, you know, other countries have realized that women's football is powerful and an exciting game and, and have invested in their programs. speed of play that we can move the ball. The goals that are created, the tactical understanding and the fitness level of all the teams across the world is improved every single year. So it's been really exciting. I mean, obviously, you want to win every single tournament. But at the same time, it's a good thing for the women's game and for the world to have more competitive competitions. And, you know, it makes our job a little bit harder. But we're saying, you know, bring it on. I know that, obviously, this Olympic tournament and, and the way that the national team wanted it and the silver lining that comes out of that is that the team has three years to remember that feeling. And I think that's the scary thing for the rest of the world.
0: How do you experience that mentally, The years after the 2011 final defeat against Japan, does it just fill your mind for four years, the World Cup 2015, the World Cup 2015? Is it like tunnel vision for you almost every day, just thinking about that?
1: I don't think so. I know for me personally, we are so focused on our next practice and our next game. I think that it's people that are successful focus on the process and then those sort of goals kind of come as a byproduct of that. So I think it's definitely in your mind. You're always thinking of gold and getting back on that podium. But in your in your day-to-day, it's certainly focused on improving every single day.
0: Question from a listener for you, Heather, at ChanRose7. Heather, if you could go back in time to one moment in your career, which would you choose to relive?
1: <laughs> I think one moment that I'm certainly... Very proud of is my cross to Alex Morgan in our match versus Canada in the London Olympics because it was, first of all, the venue being a Man U fan, the game was at Old Trafford, first of all. So I'm just setting the scene. This game was crazy and I didn't start the match so I was cheering on from the sideline and I mean Sinclair would score then we would score then Sinclair would score then we would score then Sinclair would score then we would score and then I was called in to go in (laughs) and uh, you know I went in for overtime and I remember being on the sideline doing my warm up to get ready to go into the match and I remember saying to myself like just keep your body and mind clear, like I was just trying to settle down because it was the most intense soccer match that I had been part of, um, and the emotions were certainly running high, and I knew I just felt like I had a job to do, and I just had to stay ready and just execute and I went into the match, I remember the play so clearly, Abby gets the ball, I sort of am braying wide as a as a wing player. Abby plays me this very heavy pass. <laughs> I would say it was an errant pass. <laughs> an errant pass, I think it's fair to say, and I think that Abby would agree with that. And I had to sprint to keep it in bounds. But I, I got there in enough time to get my hips around it and sent in, you know, a great ball to Alex that she was able to nod home, I think, in the hundred and twenty third minute. But I didn't touch the ball many times in that game before that cross and I think that's one of my proudest moments because I knew that I did my job for the team. I was ready. uh, And obviously it was such a dramatic win for the team. At Old Trafford, I mean, that was just a dream.
0: (sighs) This listening to you relive that moment, do you remember every goal you've scored in a US jersey? Or after you get to like 46, do they all start to blend together? And then when, when one pops up on the TV highlights, you look at yourself and you're like, oh, wow, that was a nice finish by me. (laughs)
1: <laughs> That's definitely how I feel, especially these last couple of weeks when there's been a lot of recaps and highlights and, and reviews of my career. I mean, I wish I could say that I remember them all, but I certainly don't. It's been, a, you know, it's been 15 years, Raj. There's some that split the mind a little bit, and there's some that are very extremely meaningful, and I can remember you know, the exact smell in the air and, and temperature that day, but definitely not all of them.
0: Defending the U.S. gold at the Rio Olympics... Huge hurdle. Olympic squad, just 18 players. And in the run-in, there were signs that you might not make the team. Retrospectively, maybe they were evident, maybe they weren't, but your playing time was limited. The style of play coach Ellis wanted, less direct, more possession-based. Many internationals of a certain age would have read that possibility, taken matters into their own hands and retired. That's really, that's like en vogue now. You just trained harder and harder, and kept charging up the hill. What drove you? What made you keep trying to force your way in?
1: Certainly after the World Cup, I knew that it was going to be hard to crack into the 18. Sometimes people, people dumb down athletes, but we can certainly count to 18. And, uh, you know, I knew that it was going to be tight. I had, you know, a lot of conversations with people and said like okay then this is a possibility like this is a reality i might not make this squad and you know those conversations happened probably about the end of the calendar year um 2015 and after having some really good conversations with folks and and realizing like what's what honestly the worst thing that can happen i don't make the team but the only way that I know to live is to freaking go for it. And I certainly went for it. <laughs> and, you know, fell a little bit short, but I'm really proud of um, my efforts. And I was proud to be there with the squad in Rio and, and, and hurt with the team, just like anybody on the, on the roster of 18 that, you know, we weren't able to, to go farther in the tournament. But certainly proud that I, was, that I, I put my best out there.
0: You accepted the opportunity to be an alternate and you redefined that position because it's such a difficult one. Playing every training session, attending every meal, being in every tactical meeting, but knowing that you're not going to play unless a teammate was injured. How did you experience that? Because on the surface, you were an inspirational cheerleader and often a spokesperson for the team in difficult times but I once interviewed Tim Howard about what it feels like to be out the team. And he's a very honest man. He said, as a competitive athlete, you're just rooting with every atom of your body to get onto the field.
1: Sure. I mean, um, it was definitely not an easy task. And I've said before, you know, it, it was hard, but there's harder things in life for me to be in the best 22 players in America. It was, you know, I realized that that's still an amazing achievement you know, I wrestled obviously with finding the perspective in the situation. Quite frankly, I, I did feel still part of the the team. I think the coaches and and all the teammates. We said from the very start that it was going to be a group of 22 that was going to Rio, and that everybody was absolutely uh, crucial, especially considering that there was a couple injuries in the squad. So we were certainly all all ready to go and. Any, anybody at that level has an enormous amount of self-belief, has an enormous amount of ability, and certainly wants to be you know, out in the field and competing. But I really do feel blessed in a certain respect that I wore so many hats on the national team from sort of young pup to you know, middle-aged times where I think I played in 74 games or something like that in a row. Um, which was some record, I it's guess. It's a record. Yeah. And then, you know, later on being sort of a seasoned veteran that was fighting for their time, I think that there's a lot of value in playing a lot of different roles. I think that that will help me uh, later in life. If I, you know, stay in this coaching or management capacity, I think it helps you relate to people. And, you know, for the most part in my career, like I was never cut from a team. I was... I was always you know the star on every team when I was a young kid, so it's it's important to sort of have those experiences and it was challenging, but at the end of the day, you know I got to to represent the u s and Rio and I'm proud of that
0: The decision to retire can you talk us through the process? Is it a long, gnawing, ongoing debate inside your head, or did you just wake up one morning, Heather and just say it's time <laughs>
1: Uh, it was uh, longer than that. I've been doing this a long time, 15 years on this team. At some point this year, it kind of came to the realization that it's good things have to come to an end, I guess. And uh, it was definitely a more thought-out process than just waking up one day. But uh feels right, and I'm incredibly proud. 230 games, I mean, that's amazing and got
0: one more in the tank now you've made the announcement what is the dominant emotion is it a sense of amazement at all of you've achieved just astronomical numbers or is it a sense of apprehension you've spent half of your life the entire adult half with us soccer international as a dominant part of your identity
1: yeah definitely a little bit of mixed uh, emotions i mean obviously you reflect on what you are able to do. And, you know, I look at some of my team achievements and personal achievements and, I, and it's, it's really mind blowing. I mean, it is, it's, it's incredibly mind blowing, like in terms of the championship and the games played and the goals and assists and all that. I think that a little bit of it is reflective and, and certainly a big part of it is closing of a chapter of my life and that's always sad and scary, and you have a lot of emotions behind that. But it's incredibly genuine. I'm excited to watch this team forever. And I, I joke with the girls, they better leave me tickets, or if I want a free lunch, they'd better <laughs> let me come in the meal room.
0: You, deserve, I, you deserve your own box, is the honest truth. But your last game in a U.S. jersey, Thursday night against Thailand in the mighty city of Columbus, there's something beautiful and full circle about all of this. I mean, we talked about how when Mia Ham retired, you subbed in for her. When you're subbed off tonight, what emotions do you expect to experience in that moment?
1: Oh, I mean, I'm certainly going to be crying like a baby on national television. That's for sure. <laughs> I don't know. A lot of pride, a lot of memories.
0: Will part of you feel yeah. any relief?
1: I don't know if that's going to be something that I feel because I think truly if I could play on this team until I was 80 years old, I would, I would do it. I don't think there's, you know, a better gig out there than playing football for your country.
0: And you have done it more than most. 230 caps, 46 international goals, three Olympic gold medals, one World Cup title, how do you think about the next phase of your life? Because I've got to say, I can see a life on television for you, Heather.
1: <laughs> Thanks, Raj. This is uh, first and foremost owning my international retirement. I love this game too much, so I certainly don't want to leave it while I still feel about it the way that I feel about it. I'll continue to play club and, and take my time, sort of making that that decision when when to hang up the boots completely. I've put my my heart and soul in into this gig and you know I, I definitely want to stay in football i think this is a amazing game i would love to whether that's in a coaching capacity or, or you know on tv or digging into a little bit more non-profit stuff that i'm, I'm passionate about uh, i definitely want to stay in this game because it, it certainly brought a lot to my life and i i think that i can bring the same passion to, to other people and i'm excited about that
0: i read a beautiful thing preparing for this conversation We've talked before about how you became known for your Heyo face, your game face, kind of intense, competitive, locked on glare. There was just a hundred percent warrior. And I read recently, you talked about how you used to be really embarrassed about your game face and you said, but now I'm like, when I look at it, that's just me. I live with passion, competitive fire and a winning attitude. And I love that message. I really do. When I read that, I mean, it's about learning to be yourself and love yourself. How did you make that difficult transition, Heather?
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think especially with so much social media out there nowadays, you want to have flattering photos of yourself on the Internet. And let's that's just a human <laughs> reaction. And for many years, I had not very flattering pictures of myself in media guides and on the internet, et cetera. And I was embarrassed about it. I was like, God, I'm such a go hard, which is great. But like, do I really have to make that face? Like every picture a couple of years ago, I guess maybe it's part of growing up, part of embracing yourself. And I think, you know, that game face, that intensity, that, that fire, I, I sort of obviously wear my heart on my sleeve uh, a lot. As my husband likes to say, my engine runs a little hot a lot of the time <laughs> because I'm, I'm a passionate creature and I I don't know any other way to live or to play. And uh, I I think that I realized that that's what got me to this level and that I should be incredibly proud of that. I'm, I'm nobody else, but myself. So I think that after that, I said, you know what, that game face is, it's, it's out there and you know, it's awesome because it's sort of what differentiates me and and, you know, shows everybody what I feel in my heart, which is that I'm, I'm going to, you know, leave my absolute best on the field.
0: <sighs> it's the greatest lesson of life, because to me, it is the face of a winner, an American who's all in with courage and determination and is surefire going to dominate. I'll say, Heather, there's few players I have adored watching more in a U.S. jersey than you, and I know... And no, and no, I'm not alone. You played always with passion, with total commitment every moment you're on the field. An approach to football that many of us aspire to bring to our whole life, Heather. And on behalf of all our GFOPs, I want to thank you for every moment, raising a pint of Guinness to you right now. And I wish you Godspeed. Enjoy tonight. Enjoy everything. And tomorrow.
1: Thank you, Raj.
0: Heather O'Reilly. What a human being. What an American. What a story. And for those of you not attending tonight's game in Columbus against the mighty Thailand, it's going to be, I think, probably a two-box-of-tissues affair. It'll be on ESPN2 at 8pm Eastern Time. Courage.